Long Take Review, a film podcast with one eye always on the Oscar race. I'm your host, Jensip Chakchai Bankard, and I'm here with two voices from the outer world. First, he's going to lead them to paradise. It's P.T. McNiff. How's it going, P.T.? The Mahdi is too humble to say he is the Mahdi. Even more reason to know he is, as it is written. Uh, I'm doing well, Jen. How are you? That was one of the funniest parts of this movie. I like that. I love that you chose that. Um, I'm doing well. Uh, and he's not like the other strangers. He's sincere. It's Greg Cass. How's it going, Greg? There is no one in this room who can stand against me. Your mother's warned you about my coming. Fear the moment, but you think you could have a chance, but you are afraid. What if I could be the one? This could be the moment you've been praying for all your life. I'm good, Jen. How are you? It's, <laughs> it's Greg Unleashed. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, that was great. I'm doing well. Um <laughs> This happened to me last time, too, where I'm just, like, so stymied by the quotes that I just don't know how to go on. Yeah, uh, it's fair. So uh, those those were references to the film we are here today to review, Dune Part 2, the hotly anticipated, long-awaited sequel to Dune Part 1 by Denis Villeneuve. If you are like, oh, wait, have you ever talked about Dune Part 1? Well, guess what? We just did. Uh, our last episode is all about Doom Part 1, uh, but today is our instant reactions to Doom Part 2. It is in theaters now. We all just saw it. Uh, we will probably do another episode later on where we have time to digest and kind of reflect on where the franchise is at at this point, but today is all instant, instant reactions. So if you are listening to us for the first time, we will have a spoiler-free section designed for those who have not yet seen the film. And then with a very clear alert, we are going to shift to spoiler mode for the rest of the show. But PT, if listeners think, and I, I didn't think of a Dune reference. <laughs> I typed one in. One. Say what's oh, in the did. dock. Oh, sorry. Say what's in the dock. Okay. PT, if listeners think we're unborn children worth listening to after listening to this episode, why did you make me read that, Greg? Uh, what can they do? What can, what can they do? Um, what 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 can I do? I don't know. I mean, I, I was I was just gonna go with uh, if you think we're the chosen one uh, and you don't want to miss uh, an episode, but you know the unborn children, sure, uh, timely. Uh, if you don't want to miss new episodes when they drop, please uh, follow the Long Take Review wherever you get your podcasts. We host the feed on Jen Substack, the Long Take Substack.com, but you can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Uh, Overcast, YouTube, uh, and and many more. Really, where, wherever you're listening now, just subscribe uh, and 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 put us in your feed. Uh, and you can also follow us for updates on Instagram and Threads at the Long Take Review. Oh, and you can also check out our uh, letterbox page, uh, LTR Pod. We now have uh, a show letterbox which links out to uh, you know if you look at the followers uh, and uh, or look at who that account is following. It's the four of us right now. You could also look at the followers because it's only the four of us following each other. <laughs> but uh, you know you should join it because uh, we just set it up. So uh, follow follow the show LTR Pod on Letterboxd. Amazing. And it has direct links, I saw, to all of our episodes. Very handy. Um, we are just about ready to get into our discussion of Doom Part 2. We are actually going to forego movie news this week because Doom Part 2 coming out is the news and we want to focus only on that. Um, so we'll start with our short takes. 
I have a feeling I know the answer, but what's everybody's reaction to Doom Part 2? What do we think? I thought it was incredible. Uh, I think that if you enjoyed the first movie, my 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 guess is you're really going to enjoy this second movie. If you didn't enjoy the first movie, what is happening? Like, what's going on? Uh, this is this is uh, epic. Uh, this is yeah, epic, huge sci-fi uh, spectacle filmmaking, but with uh, a strong sense of story and character underneath, uh, and like. Like we were saying in the retrospective episode, uh, if you haven't listened to that, uh, or you, it's just that there's something incredible happening on screen every like couple of minutes. And uh, yeah, I, I thought it was incredible. I cannot wait to see it again. Uh, I mean, I completely agree with PT. I actually, as I was in the theater watching it the first time, I kept thinking of PT on that retrospective episode saying every few minutes I said, I've never seen something like that before. And then they do it again and again and again. And, you know, it's it's worth thinking about like this is participating in a like if you put this in the mix of all sci fi films, like how do you make new troopers? How do you make new starships? How do you make new everything? And And this just does it like incredibly well and in- incredibly originally um you know to at risk of being superlatively hyperbolic um you know these events come around maybe once every 20 years i i would say lord of the rings was the last time there was one of these and it's incredible this is why movies were invented to go sit in a dark room and see this on a big screen so uh with all due respect to people who can't make the choice to go to the theater Everybody who can get to the theater should go to the theater because uh, we're we're definitely only getting one of these this year. Uh, that's for sure. And I think it's going to be a long time before we get more like this. So do it. Go. Jen, uh, you said you hated it in every way and didn't recommend it for anybody. So go ahead and no. explain. Those views. Weird, weird, weird take. Uh, that would make no sense after our last episode. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess. The 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 scuttlebutt sort of going into this was it's everything you loved about the first one and more. And I would say that's mostly accurate. I feel like, you know, on our retrospective episode, we talked about sort of like a, a, a hefty handful, but a handful of moments where it was like, I cannot believe they did this. I've never like, as Greg just said, I've never seen this before. And I feel like this entire movie was just that. And, and it was just so much more expanded and so much richer. And actually to kind of maybe add something new to to build off what both of you just said. I think the thing that I, that all that stuff that we just talked about, I was expecting, uh, but the thing I wasn't expecting was how sort of deep the politics and how much they managed to get into this movie. Because on the one hand, you could sort of say it's so much more action heavy than the first one because it's like, really they're going to war there's like lots of battles and stuff like that more even more so than the first one but i feel like the thing that i was really pleased with was that in the midst of all that we still get the sort of like people talking in rooms and you really understand the sort of political stakes uh and what's in the and the, the sort of social unrest uh social forces that are that are sort of at play and so that was that was the thing i left the theater being like ah they nailed it <laughs> So I guess recommendation algorithm. Okay, I'll put I'll play the thing. So does anybody actually need a recommendation to go see this movie? Like, is, should we bother with this? 
the first response I saw on Facebook was somebody saying, this is incredible. You all have to go. It's absolutely the best movie, blah, blah, blah. And the first comment on it was, can I go if I haven't seen the first one? And (laughs) no, don't go if you haven't seen the first one. That's literally all uh, the only people I would exclude. Watch the first one as long as you find it mildly interesting, then go see the second mm-hmm, one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, right. Luckily, the first one is on, I think, three different streaming services right now. It's wow. on Netflix, Hulu, and Max. So uh, they're really trying to get uh, it available to as many people as possible. Slash that Warner Brothers licensing contract is in a transitional phase. But... <laughs> Yeah, I you know, I I think the only besides people who didn't see the first one or people that are like, you know, I I I have friends who are like I don't like anything in space. Like I don't like anything that isn't real. If it if it's something that couldn't actually happen, then I don't care. Like they want a real life grounded drama. If it's about wizards or it's about spaceships, they don't care. This is going to be a problem for you. Uh even though as Jen says, there's, you know, very sort of, you know, a clear uh, political allegories and sort of politics within the world, and uh, and I think the character, the character work, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, is really strong. If you don't want to see cool sci-fi stuff, then that's going to be a problem for you. But I really think the fact that we're just trying to sliver off the the few exclusions, it's like anyone who mm-hmm. likes movies should go and see this, unless there's something about it that you're just like, I, I can't stand Timothy Chalamet's face. Then it's like, well, then you're not going to be, have, you're not going to have a good time because he's on screen a lot for two hours and 40 minutes. To be fair, his face is covered for a lot of that. True. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess if you can't stand his face, you might be okay. I can't stand his eyes. Big trouble. There you go. <laughs> Uh, we we strive for accuracy here on the long take review. Yeah, and I'd yeah I'd say that like anyone who was even remotely a fan of the first movie, you gotta go see this and make sure you go see it in the theater. I actually have had some friends ask texting me asking me where the best place to go see. Like the assumption is I'm gonna go see it in the theater, but what type of theater or like what's the best setting in which for me to see it? And so that's been really fun to answer. I like had two people ask me that. Uh, recently and so i went to go see it in the 70 millimeter imax because i have the privilege of living 10 minutes from from one of the i think is it 12 i can never get the number right of how it's it's somewhere in the low teens it's somewhere in the low teens in the country yeah it's like i thought when for oppenheimer i thought it was like 16 i heard 12 but yeah so it's somewhere around there it's only select theaters in the country that that have it and so that for me was extra incredible i mean like i am so lucky that i get to go there for, for, for most things that have but the the 70 millimeter was great i didn't have any trailers interesting which is the same for oppenheimer because i think they they don't want to too big. risk switching from digital to film um <laughs> but they we still we still started after like 15 or 20 minutes after the start time so like they allowed for the buffer mm. of the mm. previews but we just there was just nothing on the screen that, that and, means you didn't see anything from uh ghostbusters frozen empire or godzilla that. x-kong yeah i don't all know the how things you, you could were, be prepared all the mm. things out of context that you were texting about the other day <laughs> i have no <laughs> i have no idea still what those are about but yeah so it yeah it sounded and looked incredible and especially all of the sort of like exteriors anytime there are like ships and people coming out of ships and and things blowing up i was just like oh, this is amazing yeah I, I i think the answer to the question of what to go any any theater you can get to if if you yes. don't have a lot of options 
any, any big screen, go and see it. But the, whatever you have that is the most immersive for you, whether that's a theater that you, you know, you have a big IMAX theater, obviously I think 70 millimeter IMAX is the, the, the standard, the gold standard, if you can get there. Uh, but if it's a Dolby theater, cause the sound is amazing. Uh, if it's, if it's, you know, one that sort of like minimizes just dis- distractions for you, um, you know, cause they have rules about like no talking or no phones that they, they heavily enforce, whatever it is, whatever it can, you can just sink into this movie. That's where you should go. Agreed. Uh, going to underscore that by saying, um, just as I think we're making obvious, it's worth the extra money. Like I think we mm-hmm. can forget sometimes that you have to often throw in the extra five bucks for one of these premium formats and absolutely yeah. do that for Dune. Uh, skip it for Ghostbusters Afterlife because uh, Bustin is not going to make you feel good. Uh, I will say just because I like to flaunt my own privilege, I saw this in uh, Dolby first and then i saw it in imax of the two if you're like me and need to choose and show times are all equal i would go imax um the dolby had a little uh denny villeneuve came on and was like hey you made the best choice in the world buddies like this is the way to see it and uh and he specifically noted the contrast in sound between the battle scenes and the quiet uh, dialogue scenes is why you should see it in Dolby and um, uh, with all respect to to Denis uh, except I called him by his first name even though we're not friends uh, I actually preferred the IMAX um, my IMAX theater rattled my chair and uh, had me vibrating and that is chef's kiss uh, beautiful I think I'm going to try to sneak in a third viewing here in New England we have the world's uh, best theater uh, inside of a furniture store. Uh, so uh, yeah, I'm going to go George's check it out furniture. at that theater, yep. which I haven't been to in a while. But, uh, you know, look, if you can get a premium format IMAX theater and get a Fuddruckers hamburger and shop for an Ottoman, it's a good day out. So I'm there. <laughs> it's an ideal situation. And, and I mean, can you still also do like uh, acrobatics, like in a, in a contained environment or is that closed? Oh, buddy, I'm so sorry. Uh, it's now an indoor ropes course. Uh, so, yes, close, well, but they did change it. It used to be like pure trapeze school. So what about the Richardsons? There. Is Richardson still there? Richardson is still there, and okay. you are allowed to get uh, whatever ice cream you want and take it into the theater because these are all conjoined businesses, so they oh. don't mind you. So you okay. get your Fuddruckers burger, your Richardson yep. shake, mm-hmm. giant popcorn, buy three right. extra seats for the size you're about to be, and then you enjoy the film. You have to dump the popcorn out before you vomit into the bucket from the, <laughs> from all the stuff you've been eating. <laughs> and the ropes. Uh, the wait, ropes but Greg, course. speaking of popcorn buckets, I did want to talk about this before we go into spoiler mode because it's it's a fun pre-theater thing to get to think about. You mentioned that tons of people were buying the the absurd, weird-looking sandworm yeah. AMC bucket, right? Yes. Uh, so I went to my first screening was 9 o'clock Thursday night, and people – Every uh, row had probably five or six people who had the popcorn bucket. Um, most people seem to keep it in the plastic as like, this is my treasure. And it comes with a large popcorn, which you can have them put in that bucket. But people had the popcorn separately and were preserving the bucket. And I was very aware of this because the very sweet seeming couple to my right, every time somebody walked in, Either the guy turned to the girl or the girl turned to the guy and went, oh, my God, he bought the bucket. Oh, my God, look, there's <laughs> another bucket. And so it was like it was pretty steady for the whole time. And it it became wow. clear. I I have not purchased the bucket. Oh, and, and sorry. And the rest of that is 
uh, when I went to my uh, 11 a.m. showing on Friday, they were out of buckets. So there were no buckets left at that AMC location. So I did not give in. I'm happy with my choice, but I am starting to feel like this is one of those things where like the people who are eight or nine right now and their parents are saying no are going to buy these on eBay for like a couple hundred bucks when they're 30. So it's starting <laughs> to feel like that territory. So um, maybe it's a good investment piece if you still see them. Uh, the long take review in no way endorses speculative collecting, but uh, maybe it is such a thing. Lots of friends I know have bought them. They are proud. Uh, listener of the show, uh, Hasib, uh, posted his proudly and uh, great to see that they're out there. So no disrespect to people taking the plunge it's just yeah. it's just not for me <laughs> yeah i've been going back and forth because uh, like seeing everyone getting them and then hearing they're selling out i'm just like oh maybe i should have had you get me one but then i'm just thinking about like where is it going to be in my house all the mm-hmm. time and then that's why yeah. I, when i snap back to reality being like I, I don't think i could do that i my theater is regal and they had kung fu panda four buckets out already mm-hmm. and then i saw one dune bucket that was just like a normal bucket with the dune logo on it someone just wrote dune on the side (laughs) yeah to try to to make it a a uh and then but the weird thing was when i was at the concession stand one of the employees kind of zoomed by and then held up this t-shirt and was like do you want he was and and the sales pitch was hurried and confusing because he was like you can get your popcorn for free if you buy this t-shirt and i was like what and he's like and it costs less than it normally does i'm like okay so i'm paying for the t-shirt but my popcorn is free somehow, which was already free because I have a bazillion regal points and use them to get free popcorn. Um, <laughs> you get the small free popcorn and then the popcorn upgrade. It's great. And then I would at first I was and it wasn't a bad T-shirt, but I was just so confused and actually to the point where like I didn't even know if this was an official regal sale, like or if this this kid was just <laughs> like trying to trying to Side sell up. Dune T-shirts while while working. So and then I said no. But uh, so I was like, I'm pretty sure I can probably buy a very similar T-shirt somewhere else. And not be confused and and hold up this this concession line. Um, so that's my that's my merch report from Regal Theaters. <laughs> I, I don't have a, a merch report because I didn't see anyone with the the pint glasses from the Alamo Draft House. But I can say that uh, the the two things I'll note from their pre show role for this movie was they did a here's what happened on the previous Dune. But instead of just showing clips from Dune, the the Villeneuve Dune Part One, they mixed in stuff from the Lynch movie and the uh, the the miniseries, the Sci Fi Channel miniseries. Oh, nice. So it was like Patrick Stewart and uh, Josh Brolin like delivering the same line back to back, but like oh, with amazing. slight variations, oh, cool. so you could see how like the story has been told in different ways. Uh, and then they were doing uh, alternate history of stuff from Dune where they would take scenes from the first movie, but then splice in like something else. So like the one that stood out was um, Lady Jessica watching uh, Paul Atreides in the first movie. This is no spoiler. Do the sand walk. Um, but with, so it was like her reactions, but when it cut to the sand walking, it was um, they imposed Christopher Walken from the weapon of choice video dancing on the sand. Uh, and it was, uh, it was incredible. It was, uh, it was really well done. So um, good job. Good job to everyone involved in that. Amazing. So this is probably a record. It's only 20 minutes in and I think we're ready for spoiler mode already. <laughs> So let's do it. And we really uh, stretched it to get to twenty minutes. We did try. We, we, we talked about buckets. four minutes on on bu- buckets and glasses. So <laughs> you know we're, we're we're trying to fill time almost. Yeah. 
I, I got one more just to throw in. Uh, after our Dune hype episode, I followed the advice and went and watched 1984 Dune. And I wanted to just let listeners know, because we didn't let them know there, if you don't have enough Dune in your life, uh, that Dune and the documentary that PT mentioned are both on Max right now. So people should check those out oh, nice. if you need more Dune content. But now I will get out of the way and say, let's go to spoilers. Yeah, let's do it. So if you have not seen Dune Part 2... I probably also should say if you've not seen Doom Part 1, because I feel like we'll probably reference things <laughs> from that movie as well. But at, at the same time, why are you still here, I guess, if that's the case? Please go watch those movies. We've already talked about how you could do that. Go do that and come back. Rejoin us for the rest of the conversation. Okay. So I purposely did not read the second half of the book, knowing that I was going to see this movie. Originally, I was going to try to read it right before, and I didn't. So then I'm, now I'm going to spin it as, well, now I have the fresh perspective of like someone who hasn't, doesn't, <laughs> didn't know what, what, the, what was going to happen going into it. So I have ideas for what big, the biggest like surprises or spoilers were, but do you two have that? Well, the, the thing that I, fe- I felt I had to text Greg. Um, w- w- like, because w- I usually don't want to do like side chatter when, you know, when we have a group thread and we have an episode coming up, but the thing I couldn't hold back from was how confident I was in our dude retrospective episode of like, well, this is going to be the end of the book. They're going to end this story for in Dune part two, and they're going to let, you know, that, that play out because of the potential awards impact of it. And then after next year's you know, a year from now, when the Academy Awards cycle is over, and hopefully Dune Part 2 wins a bunch of awards, uh, they will say, well, maybe we'll do a third movie. And instead, th- this movie also ends with, this is only the beginning. Uh, or or something is now starting, and it's like, oh, when Christopher Nolan kept saying, this is The Empire Strikes Back, he doesn't just mean it's a darker sequel. He means this is clearly the second part of a trilogy that's like, we need the third one for it to make sense. So to me, that was the biggest surprise that like, it's it's ending on a, a cliffhanger again. Mm-hmm. I believe what you're referring to is J- Lady Jessica at the very end says, and now the holy wars begin yes. or have begun or something like that, right? Um, uh, she says, begun the holy wars have. <laughs> there you go. She, she does drop a Bene Gesserit influence do it at one point, which is very mm. Palpatine. I, I need to yeah. note. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. So I guess like what, I mean, what were you expecting instead if it doesn't? Or is it literally just that one line that does that? You mean, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, my, my memory. Oh, go ahead, Greg. You... Well, I was going to say I so I talked on the hype episode about how I didn't get fooled last time. And I <laughs> I think I, I'm a long ways out from reading the book. I think this does largely respect where the book ends. We just mm-hmm. didn't necessarily get all the hints that that house war was going to come. And this it's like. To me, if I if I had to guess, it's like let's just grab the first chapter from Dune Messiah to toss in here. Um, and I think for all the reasons we said in the hype episode, that's a bold choice. That was surprising. And the primary reaction when the first title ca- card came up in both the theaters I saw it in was like a what, like a stunned, like what is really? And so um, all that I said to defend it last time, I'm, I'm a little worried they are surprising people and people are going to be grumpy about right. it, but, um, not a lot bears yet, that out. Yeah. Right. Is it just too early? And then all the grumpy people haven't seen it yet. And now they're going to be, yeah. it did it again. It's, 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 it's not a whole movie. It's just setting oh, up the next one. 
I have to sit through another awesome movie in a few years. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to have to do it again. Yeah, my, my uh, so it's been, a, I, I read the uh, original book around when the first movie came out and I've had the second book for her, like a year. But uh, like Jen, uh, I, I have chosen to not read it uh, until this movie came out. That, that's that's my story <laughs> and I'm sticking to it. But like, my memory of the the book and then the, and also the David Lynch version, uh, which I watched Again, three years ago, uh, in in a in a post post Dune Part One hype hype cycle, um, is is it sort of ends similarly where it's like, you know, uh, uh, Paul wins over Fade Ratha. You know, the Emperor has to bow down to him. He's like, I'm going to marry your daughter. The girl that he's in love with is like, excuse me, uh, yeah. but and, and it's sort of left as like, so he's kind of technically sort of in charge. We don't think everyone's gonna go along with this, but it's kind of just left as like, mm, okay. oh, the, what are the other houses gonna say? Like, mm, I don't know. Yeah. As opposed to this one, where it's like the other houses are here and they're attacking, right. uh, so we they better have, get going. They have, they will have a response. Like they, right. they are yeah. like, we do not accept this. Right? Okay, I get it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I <laughs> all through this movie, which I don't think I had for the first one, I was like, oh, is this this is kind of like if Game of Thrones were in space, but better. I would mm. I would say in a lot of respects, um, yeah. but but yeah, the idea of there are more houses. I mean, now and then it opens up so much possibility where I'm like, who, where what are the uh, these other houses? Because we've mostly been just spending time with like two, um, three if you count the emperor, right? Like so one if you now yeah. no never mind <laughs> what right they folded <laughs> the two together. <laughs> oh, that's true. It's true. I mean, this is spoiler. that's another this spoiler. spoiler. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That was, so okay. So. Um, I also was like not surprised, but like very happy to see Gurney. Though I could have guessed that, you know what I mean. Like that was the one mm-hmm. where I was like, when it happened, I was like, yeah. And then, but then I was oh. like, well, I kind of saw that coming. Like I, that was the thing I, I th- assumed might happen. And if you if you uh, sat through uh, like all the credits, not that there's like a, a scene or anything, but uh, if you were just enjoying yourself and you sat through the credits, or you looked at the Wikipedia page, you you could see that um, is it Stephen McKinley Henderson, um, the Mentat filmed scenes for it, but the, they got cut from the movie. So oh. the Mentat is also alive, uh, but. Uh, you know, and Aww, maybe we'll be back in, in another movie. We'll, okay. He, he gets a special thanks at the end. Him and Tim Blake Nelson, who was playing a new character, whose scenes also didn't make it into the movie. Aww. I love Tim Blake Nelson. Uh, I do too. Um, Wait, who was so, he? Uh, I don't know. We don't know who Tim Blake oh, Nelson don't know. is because it, it, it would have been a new character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, there's speculation based on book characters, but he didn't make it. Uh, because I just remembered what show we're on. Tim Blake Nelson does an incredible job as the narrator of one of the animated shorts for this year's Oscars that oh. uh, people should take check out. It's the one I'm going to forget. It's like 99 somethings, 99 senses or 95 cents. Okay. It's good. So, um, more on our Oscar prediction podcasts coming uh, soon. Very um, soon. <laughs> in the in next two, half hour. Two, in two um, days. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so I will jump on the what was your biggest surprise? Um, I have two that really did. I since I just hinted at it, um, this movie has a, a Vader, a Luke, I am your father moment uh, in it, which is a reference there that 
I either did not remember, or this is a new addition that, um, that Jessica, Lady Jessica is the daughter of the Baron. So when they, uh, receive all the ages of memories, both she and then Paul realize that they are both, uh, Atreides and Harkonnen, which is crazy and such a cool moment in the middle of that. I find it interesting that it doesn't go too far. It just becomes like another reason to kill him. And um, you kind of get a little uh, Ray Skywalker like grandfather uh, side. Sure. That's how you say that. Uh, yeah, let's, grand- let's talk about this. Side? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I, I cause, so so why? What do you think that adds to the story? Because I do think it is a pretty significant reveal, uh, and does complicate a lot of things in terms of the dynamics and like what these and for these two characters, what they thought they were doing and why they thought they were doing it suddenly gets kind of muddied. I think, but like, yeah, what are, what are our thoughts? Like, let's unpack this. Uh, I mean, I, I think it is to sort of underscore the the. Bene Gesserit on on a plot level, not not a thematic mm-hmm, level. Mm-hmm. On a plot level, it's to underscore the Bene Gesserit like plan because I think it was like, mm-hmm. okay, we're we're doing like all of these pieces. We've been cultivating this that this was going to be. You know, we're trying to to get to the the chosen one, and uh, the it seems like, and I, I'm forgetting now if this is something that is is even hinted at in the movie or if it's just something I was reading about in a frenzy of like excitement after seeing it. Um, but that like in the, in the books, as you get deeper into the books, it's that the lady Jessica is a Harkonnen married to the Atreides family. And then they were supposed to birth a daughter who would then marry into the Imperial family. And then that child was going to be, they thought was going to be the chosen one. And then it's that lady Jessica skipped the line basically, because right. when you're a Bene Gesserit, you get to choose the gender of your child, apparently. Why not? And so uh, Duke, Duke Leto wanted a son, right? And so she chose right. him over listening yes. to the, and that is in the first movie where mm-hmm. the Charlotte Rampling is like, you like, you know, with your pride, you chose to have a, a son and now you're putting him forward as, as if he could be, uh, he could be the chosen one. So, so that was sort of the machinations. I think you know, it's uh, I, I was I was just googling, which is why I didn't have an immediate reaction to your question because I was multitasking. Um, apparently, that's not it's not in the Frank Herbert books. It came out in the later ones mm. that his son and uh, oh, Kevin J. Anderson were working on uh, with that she was had a uh, Harkonnen heritage. Um, but you know, it seems to me like they made sure to put this in the movie. To help further indicate that, like, baby Paul's not a hero. Like, he spends the first, like, the first movie and, like, you know, the first half or even maybe two-thirds of this movie being like, I really shouldn't lean into this Messiah thing. I think it's going to go really badly. And then being like, all right, I'm doing it. And, like, the the character that I assume we're something, I kind of felt the most, like, this person is the most on top of this, which is Chani, uh, Zendaya's mm-hmm. character, is just sort of like, no, like, this is not good. This is a bad idea. And there's a lot of reaction shots. There's a lot going on where it's like, you have all the rousing, inspiring, like, yeah, we'll lead them to paradise. You're like, yeah. And then the person that you trust the most is like, no, like, no. this is bad. So Don't I think fit. it's like, oh, actually, you know, like, you're, you're part evil. Like, you're part the really bad guys. All the bad guys, there's a part of that in you as well. Is is there to reinforce? This is not just a standard white savior story. This is a a critique and commentary on it 
laying the groundwork for the anti-hero component of his story mm, okay. going into the third movie. I like that, but I have a counter argument. Please. So to me, the thing I thought of when they revealed this was that so much of the story up until this point has been about, and, and this is sort of why Gurney, I think, comes back into the story, right? Because he's the reminder of, no, like you are an Atreides and, you know, don't you remember all the terrible things that the Harkonnens did to us and to your father and like don't you want vengeance right and i think you know there's so much of like us versus them and like harkonnens have done all these terrible things don't we want to you know get back at them and i think by revealing that he is in fact part harkonnen also sort of shows how not arbitrary but like how constructed that narrative is and the idea of like we are Ooh. all different houses of pure bloodlines and stuff like that um and so to me it was like it's only because he is like a mixture of all these different houses and now it, and i would include the fremen in that too it's not by blood but you know like that that he is he is part from like that's why he has like a thousand names like if he's part fremen and he's from the house of trades he also by blood is is part harkonnen then like then he is the one who is able to sort of like transcend or break out of the system that exists of the houses and, and sort of like disrupt it, revolutionize it, whatever you want to call it. Right. That was sort of my read on it because it's like, it's again, to go back to game of Thrones in space, it's like the break the wheel thing. Right. Right. It's from game of Thrones, uh, which didn't actually pan out, but that's another episode uh, potentially. Uh, it's a conversation. I mean, the, the, for wheel, day. the wheel got broken in 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 certain ways. Uh, yes. I would like I would like to real quick quickly because now uh, I I actually read uh, more the the web page I opened in my multitasking. I like to issue a correction. It is in the Frank Herbert books that Baron Harkonnen is her father. It's who her mother is that is only in the later oh. prelude books. Um, first of all. Clearly never listened to a fantastic Wheel of Time podcast called uh, Through the Glass Columns because Breaking the Wheel was stolen by George R. R. Martin from the Wheel of Time oh. mythology, hence Oops. Wheel of Time. Uh, so I do just have to point that out. Uh, That's fair. And then in my deep research before this show on the question and not my Googling while you were both talking, uh, I want to just add a couple more things to this conversation, which I think kind of merge your two perspectives. So um, USA Today has some quotes from uh, Denis Villeneuve, uh, who says, uh, you know, talking specifically about um, when Paul kills his grandfather, when he kills the Baron, um, and his kind of read on that, which we could talk in rhetorical situation about how art isn't necessarily in only the eyes of the creator. He says, by doing this, Paul steps away from the Atreides way and becomes a Harkonnen, says Villeneuve. It's one of the most powerful moments of the mm. film. All the f- sophistication and vulnerability of Paul Atreides is gone. We see him in his eye. Sorry, we see in his eyes the madness of war. And so I I like that reading because the brutality of then the Baron's body laying, getting eaten by insects is, uh, I think that's right to think of that as much more Harkonnen than it is um, Atreides. And that shows that he has kind of, as you were both saying, he's changed so much. I, I agree with Jen's thought because so much of the book to me was him stuck between the Fremen and the Atreides world. And so now it's like they're adding a third dimension to that calculation. 
but it really suits uh, when the emperor says to him, your father was a weak man uh, who'd lead to the, <laughs> I can't do walking, who'd lead uh, to the rules <laughs> of the heart, but the heart is not meant to rule. And I think if you, that's what he says, I believe uh, after the Baron is killed, but before mm-hmm. the, the duel. And so that to me is, again, I think Villeneuve sees the end of this film as Paul Atreides is gone. And yeah, he's uh, going to the dark Paul. side. Yeah, and it was Paul Atreides who was in love with uh, Zendaya. Uh, I do know she has a different name Johnny. every time. Johnny. Uh, and so that's why that relationship, spoiler alert, because I think that's going to surprise a lot of people, that is seemingly over now. And uh, he's uh, going into the cinematic puniverse, as we've called it before, uh, to marry Florence <laughs> Pugh. Right. And like she specifically says in the middle of the movie, I will always be with you as long as you stay, stay who you are. Right. And so this Mm -hmm. is very, the fact that she's leaving is evidence that he's not who he is anymore. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And then his version of it is as long as I breathe, like Mm. I will love you as long as I breathe, which is different than being who you are. Word choice, everyone important. Also remember he stopped (laughs) breathing. He died. Right. So he he loved her until he died. Wait, 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 no, no. Because didn't they say that his doesn't Lady Jessica say that his life signs are so low that he's he's still technically alive, but he's just not you can't detect that he's alive. Sure. I mean, but was he breathing like if his life signs were so low, was there a stretch of time? I think it's possible you can read that as a symbolic. Yeah, sure. I I think he said that again after in the big council scene as well. So I don't think it quite right. It's right before he's it's basically him being like. Look, you don't know this, but I'm about to go propose to another lady over there. So, right. just so you know, I love you. I'm gonna leave, love you until my until yeah. as long as I'm breathing. So don't whatever you see next, whatever happens next, don't interpret it as I don't love you. Right? Yeah, right. That's that's his way. I mean, it's like a really emotionally unintelligent way of of communicating that. But because <laughs> then because then she's like, what is happening? Right? Like, <laughs> and I love the editing well, in that and- scene because it does such a good job of cutting between those three characters. It's like. Oh. <laughs> And the way the shot okay. where um everybody kneels to him, but there those two are standing, it's really, mm-hmm. really that's cinema baby. Um we- I just also wanted to throw in the quote you used to introduce me, right? She says, uh, he's sincere, he's not like the other offworlders. This is clear. Oh, he's just an offworlder. He's not actually one yeah. of us, one of the Fremen. So I think right. and all he puts of that- the ring back on. Yeah. Yeah, it all is just layered together to say like, hey, this movie has a point and a message and it builds to it really clearly kind of across mm-hmm. the whole considerable length. Uh, I, I, I want to add, uh, we talked about our theater experiences earlier. I had a, uh, who seemed to be a very nice woman, uh, a few seats away, who was very like vocal in her surprise reactions when things were surprised, like if someone got shot or stabbed like even if it was like a bad you know a, a grunt <laughs> soldier is like oh uh and so when uh when so every throat like, slipped by a harkonnen yes well, she, huh. like she yeah had a big reaction and when he was like you know i'll love you as long as i breathe to zendaya that was like florence let's do this she was like oh, like she had a really big gasp like <laughs> she amazing. really felt that betrayal um uh so yeah it played See, really like well. i knew that I had that on my radar. And again, like, because I didn't read the second half of the book. So I, I didn't know this was a possibility. But in the movie, I feel like it's, it's there, there are tells pretty early on, like when the, 
the the reverend mother there's like when she like in the conversations with with princess Aurelian very early in the movie i'm like oh she's gonna have to be the like diplomatic marriage offering right like it's pretty early that i had that 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 thought crossed my mind yeah, um, the, the 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 reverend mother uh, of the uh empire uh does does say something about like you know your 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 dad's gonna have to step down christopher walken's not gonna make it through this but your family will still be there and it like she it doesn't explicitly be like because you're gonna marry whoever wins the inevitable duel mm-hmm. between austin butler and timothy chalamet um but uh but that seemed to be pretty clear as well as like why is florence Pugh in this movie to just like narrate into a diary every like 30 minutes <laughs> unless she's going to be set up to have a bigger role uh, down, right. down the road, down, down the right. way. I, I want to jump back briefly to um, the scene that Greg pulled, uh, or Greg was talking about from that poll from the USA Today article to talk about another big change that I think is, uh, uh, you know, crucial to, or uh, crucial to look at in terms of understanding this movie, which is the time period is condensed in this movie compared to the book. Because in the book, uh, Paul's sister is born. And um, like that, that is a character is a is mm. a child, but is a child who speaks in an adult woman's voice and freaks everybody out. So that whole like like uh, the, <laughs> the reference at the beginning of like the hearing the unborn child uh, is is I think yeah that's there, but it's only there briefly. The sort of Paul is training with the Fremen, he's building his skills, his eyes are getting bluer. That's like two years, whereas in the movie mm. is like feels like it's a couple of months maybe. And so um, at the end of the, of the book and at the end of the David Lynch movie and the other ones, it's the, it's the young sister who kills the Baron. Um, and, and oh. like her title is like knife wielder or something, which is that that's not accurate, but it's something like that mm-hmm, um, because mm-hmm. she uh, stabbed uh, and is the one who is like grandfather. And then boom. Um, interesting uh kills him so do you think uh, they just thought that would be a little too weird um uh, considering everything else we get in this movie maybe not <laughs> well maybe i mean i i i think that you know given that quote that greg said i i had thought it was like yeah that's weird like i guess um to put spoilers within the spoiler zone if you're uh, if you're here and you really haven't seen the movie, like skip ahead 30 seconds. But we do get like one shot and one voiceover that his sister is going to be Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, which was unannounced uh, until the premiere of the movie. That, uh, you know, they didn't want to just have a character with that voice and, and a little kid and then a little kid who kills the big, creepy big guy. Um, but then Greg reading that quote earlier made me realize of, oh, no, they made it a character beat for Paul. For Paul, that, like, yeah. uh, You know, instead of, you know, having it be this extra, it's extra character being like gaining in prominence. It's like, well, let's just keep it focused. Let's keep it about Paul. And Paul's the one who is sliding into this other other persona falling to the dark side in the in the parlance of another franchise is the sister potentially the Quizette Hatterack instead of Paul or Fade? Well, he's dead now, but uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, did, was there were there seeds of that in the movie? I was sort of like, because there's a moment where Lady Jessica says, "And the Quizette Hatterack will be born in the South." And I'm like, well, she could be talking metaphorically about Paul and his change, 
but she could also be talking about this 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 unborn child and that she's really ever all of these are steps to, to secure the unborn child is sort of like going to emerge as the most powerful or am i just is that crazy no. i i think i think left intentionally ambiguous okay okay yeah i think, I, yeah. I think yeah. You're, my, right, my silence you're right is yeah my silence is i don't know for sure and if i did i would i would be quiet but um and again this is only I have never read the second book, but I have always understood the title Dune Messiah to be let's challenge the idea and problematize the idea of a messiah. Let's not lean in and Mm -hmm. celebrate a messiah. So I think all of that feels like if I'm Denis Villeneuve and I've laid the track, um, that that's what I I would try to tackle for this third this third uh, film that we're getting. It's weird to talk about Dune part three. I also, um, I'll just put that out here. Now I have heard Denis Villeneuve has said clearly he's doing something else and then Dune part three. So it's not like this is immediately (laughs) coming down the pike and a huge respect. I can't imagine these are easy movies to make for the shoot, for the post-production, everything that we've praised about them means they take a long time. So, I want him to take all the time he needs, but uh, yeah, this isn't the surprise in Spider Verse was like, see you next year. Now that's also become false, but you know, um, I don't think we're going to see Dune Part Three for probably three or four years again. Mm-hmm. But I, I will note, like something that uh, the uh, friend friend of the show, non listener. Uh, but colleague of Jedi Dave Topkins, who saw it in the same the same screening with me, uh, we uh, we were talking afterwards about how like it feels like Lord of the Rings in that it feels like these were shot back to back, even though they weren't because it was there was a space and there was a pandemic that like yeah. separated the the productions. So uh, you know, I, I I trust that even if he goes off, and I believe he's doing a different weird sci-fi story that he's adapting uh like he's not going to be like i'm gonna do a small you know uh <laughs> earthly drama it's like no, right, no, he's not like taking a break no, right i'm still <laughs> gonna have like spaceships and and stuff but it's a different world um I, I trust that they'll be able to come back and and if if assuming they can reassemble the uh the team uh that they'll they'll be able to make it look like a clear continuation but uh yeah it's uh it's going to be hard to wait because i want it right now <laughs> Do we feel like, because I want to pick up on what Greg said about problematizing and kind of complicating the idea of the Messiah. Did you appreciate how they handled that in this film? Or like how, I guess maybe the better question is like, how did they handle that in this film? Did it do it enough for people? Do you think? I I put the kind of this question down in the document down there. So that's why. Oh, okay. I just didn't see. (laughs) No, you're fine. You're fine. We are naturally moving to the rhetorical situation, a segment in which we look at a film through the lens of our academic experience. So all four of our regular co-hosts, in case you're wondering what the segment is, are writing professors. So we like to have this section of the episode dedicated to making connections to our experience as scholars and teachers. And it seems like we were naturally bumping up against something that was in here. <laughs> so I'll, I'll start with some context and then I'll let you two do the smart part. So, okay. um, uh, so you know, uh, the rhetorical situation, the way I always explain it first and foremost to my students is that you can't evaluate a piece of writing or text uh, in any way without considering it in its full context. 
context. Um, and so Dune, the series, uh, has a lot of the kind of familiar parts of context we've talked about before. It's an adaptation. It's part of film discourse. It's part of Oscar discourse. But I would say as one sci-fi fan, the thing you hear about it the most is that it participates in what's commonly called the white savior uh, formula, which has come in our modern world to be seen as quite problematic. And fans of movies or stories will kind of understand the white savior narrative is that it's usually some kind of indigenous or uh, community that's troubled. And then uh, a savior from the outside who whoops, just happens to be a white man. I'm looking at you, Avatar comes in and is the one who is actually going to take these unruly savages using the problematic understanding of it to, uh, you know, put this back in order and save everybody. So particularly with Dune, and I'm just going to speak historically and then let you two talk about it in the context of this film. Dune um, has this, uh, has the Fremen who are coded as seemingly Bedouin or Middle Eastern in a lot of ways. And then you have these imperial powers, I mean, literally an empire, but also houses that are coded as European in a lot of ways. And so Dune coming out as a a novel uh, in the 60s, it felt like almost this retrograde way in which, oh, don't worry, the European powers can come back and put into order all the problematic parts of the world. And I think that is why people who kind of dislike the the mythology of Dune kind of say, uh, hold on a minute and think about that. So back to Jen's really important question, Denis Villeneuve is working on all this in with that context, right? And so I think if he had presented a straight white savior narrative, uncomplicated, he would have uh, he wouldn't have gotten canceled, but people would have said, "Hold up," uh, and thought about him a little bit more. But here, I, I would say his solution to the problem is that he's going to present it in a questionable fashion and not let every character be. Uh, the Javier Bardem full zealot, I believe everything, but we have real splits in the kind of reaction to that. So I think it's a really good question, Jen. And why I wanted to throw it into rhetorical situations, because this is everything. This is what we do when we study literature. This is what we do when we study writing is putting this in its context. So I'd love to hear uh, both of your thoughts on, uh, you know, how you think this does or does not correct for that potentially problematic part of the mythology. Well, I I will pushback slightly only in that I think that the pushing back is in the books as well. I don't know how successful it is, but I think that again, as uh, speaking with uh, limited uh, understanding, having only read the first book, but even in the first book, it is like pretty clear that like this, it is not going to be a good thing that he is doing this. And, and my understanding of what unfolds over uh, certainly the, the Frank Herbert, uh, initial trilogy and then into the the following three books that he wrote uh, that it's like, yep, like this, this was a problem. I don't know if he thought of it as, oh, I'm critiquing, you know, sort of colonial European adventures in uh, other lands, specifically the Middle East. Um, but he, it was pushing back at the idea of, uh, you know, someone being the savior and someone coming in and doing this as opposed to, people together working within nature and working with the planet. Um, You know, I I, I also, my understanding is also that he was really into just like, we all need to take mushrooms. 
And so it's like, what we should be doing is taking mushrooms <laughs> and feeling the interconnectedness of the whole planet uh, and, and you know, believe in that. So so someone standing up and being like, I'm the one and I should lead is, is you know, that's not very uh, silocybic. Is that the word? Uh, it's very against that kind of, that, that, that mindset. So, um, so I do think that's there. I think in terms of the movie, I was glad the degree to which it was there because I was... I, you know, I didn't think that it was, you know, I trusted um, Villeneuve to not shy away from it, but I wondered if it was going to get a little buried, especially mm-hmm. when I didn't realize that, that it, like, he is making this like it's a trilogy, not I'm doing Dune 1, Dune Part 1 and Dune Part 2, and then if 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 I can, I will do Dune Messiah as the third movie based on the on the second book. It's like, nope, these are all of a piece. So I, I liked that. It wasn't just those sort of hints like in the first movie of I have visions and the visions are of all these people dying. Like we get that the the actual like shot of the vision of like the person bent over in the desert, like with their like screaming um, in pain. And like that comes up multiple times of like that is what Paul sees when he sees, you know, what's going to happen when he does what he eventually does. And again, we have Chani being like yeah you like i'm really skeptical of this and i'm skeptical of you going the, down this path and the movie ends on her on her being like i'm not following i'm not mm-hmm. doing this so i think you know uh I, I am sure there are going to be uh people who watch the movie and don't see the critique there but like uh it, it's this is uh this feels like a i'm gonna make a a, a weak um, uh, in terms of like like cinematic uh, reference, uh, weak ish, uh, and then try to save it with a strong one. The the end really reminded me of Spider Man Two, the Sam Raimi Spider Man Two, of like we feel great, like the hero's going off to do its thing, but we're ending on the, right. the woman in his life looking like this is like <laughs> this is <laughs> like we should not do this. Um, and then the you know, and Sam Raimi Spider Man Two is an incredible movie. I don't mean to denigrate that that as a reference point, um, but I'll I'll go on the flip side to the the higher minded uh, one is uh, how much this movie pulls from Lawrence of Arabia, which mm. came out three years before the book was. I, I I would I would be surprised if it wasn't. Uh, part of like the you know whether directly or intentionally or not you know something that was in Frank Herbert's uh, understanding of like yeah like isn't it great when like this white person goes and like becomes you know you know does this thing becomes a part of the goes native and and joins this community and rises up and like Lawrence Arabia, you know, is is not without flaws in terms of its depictions uh, and casting of people from different parts of the world, but is certainly not a story about like it's awesome when Europeans go and fix things in other parts of the world. It is, uh, you know, it's not Avatar and it's not, um, you know, Dance of the Gully. It's, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so yeah, I I generally agree that I think it's it's in there at least in terms of the film, right? It's in there. My worry also was that it might be too subtle. Um, but I think the the Chani character who that and that feels like so you can correct me if I'm wrong about the book, but it feels like they are purposely make giving her more of a spotlight than maybe she would have had in the book. Um, for this reason and and all, I mean also to kind of boost like obviously 
you know, she's in Zendaya, you want to give her as much screen time as you can. And in fact, that was like the biggest critique of the first movie is that like it tricked people into thinking she was going to be in it and that she wasn't, (laughs) you know. So so I think everything pivots on that on the Chani character, right, because she is the one. And and not just her, but her faction of Fremen, right? Because that whole group of Fremen are like anti-prophecy, right? They're like, that's a bunch of hooey, right? Um, we're not religious. We're not zealots, right? We're not fundamentalists. And not like those people in the South. We're the ones from the North who are sort of more more grounded, right? Um, and she has a very important line that is like, I think, and I think it's when when they go to the south and she's in that crowd and she's not supposed to speak because she's not she's she's a woman and everyone keeps trying to get her to shut up and and she says this she stands up and screams like this is how they prophecies are how they enslave us right like this is how they this is a, a means of control and i feel like if she doesn't have that line then a lot of this kind of like is much more harder to kind of pin down so i'm glad that they had that in there and then also yeah her so very clearly and not being conflicted at all that's actually the part i really loved because i feel like in another person's movie or another person's adaptation of this there's more of a but i love you oh but i cannot all right you know i mean there's more kind of hemming and hawing romantically about like like but she's just like i'm out like this is ridiculous Mm. uh (laughs) which i really liked um but yeah i think that her yeah, her position, and you get the sense that because they have that their little like war table map, and she's one of the like three or four big factions, right? And so like her, I definitely buy that in the next movie she's probably a big player and a leader and stuff like that. And so I think because of that, and they also kind of make a lot of comments about what is illusion of prophecy versus prophecy itself, in particular the drinking of the water of life or the poison. Um, when Lady Jessica does it, right, Paul himself is like, no, don't be fooled. Like, that's she's trained to do that. She has trained her body to reject poison. Like, that's a Bene Gesserit mm-hmm. thing. That's not a this is fated to be thing. It's not a fulfilling of the prophecy. And then when he does it, it's the same thing where it's like, you know, it's very clearly. But then here's where it gets iffy, because then the whole desert, desert spring tears thing is like, mm. well, that seems real. And, she, and it seems like Chani very begrudgingly participates in the fulfillment of that prophecy, right? So it's like, yeah, I think it's really interesting that it's like hard to tell what what part of the, what the film thinks is real prophecy versus not. And yeah, I'll just note I, I liked all of that, and I think you're you're right that there is, you know, there is some gray area where it's like you there isn't a character where you're like, well, that one that person is definitely the right. I I do think. Like I watched it and felt like Chani is the most right, but mm-hmm. there could be someone that was like, no, Javier Bardem, Stilgar, like the true believer. Uh, he's the one who has confidence in that. I, I just want to note, I believe that's the second time that that scene in the council is the second time that Chani is like, uh, oh, you're, you're right. The prophets are just, uh, are, are how they control us. Cause I think she's saying that when they're, when Lady Jessica is doing the, the ritual to become the reverend mother right before Paul is like, this is, yeah, this is poison. Cause she's like, now nah, we don't believe in the prophecy. Like that's, that's a Southern thing. This is, uh, you know, this is, that's just what they say to control us. But we also know as text in these movies, it's true. The Bene Gesserit have been sprinkling those stories for, for uh, you know, generations to control them and just sort of be like, yeah, yeah, we do that. So, you know, we've, we've, we've got all these. So like, if we need to, we can call upon people. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so we do all that to get it going. So, you know, 
in that sense, she is right. But then, you know, it's weird that like something happens. Like it does get to, you know, there there is the Desert Spring component and we don't know enough to know if it's like, you know, we, we haven't heard that prophecy before. So it's a little, the, the one critique that he I had- think I could have about the movie is that what, like the back half of this does feel like, I won't go as far as say rushed, but like, oh, it's a lot happening kind of back to back. And there's a couple of times where it's like, was there supposed to be like something before this? Like, is there a, like a three and a half hour version of this movie that has a couple more beats leading up to some of those things in the, in the end uh, to, to, to more smoothly set it up. But that was just way too long. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, that's, that's again, a very light critique. It's still a, still a five-star movie for me. Is there a three and a half hour cut of this movie that could fill in those beats and give us Tim Blake Nelson? That's my real question. Yeah, I think um, so. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah. Uh, He's a show to say this Desert Spring prophecy. Am I right? And then he lies. <laughs> uh, we can't uh, have it. So I want to um, pick up on a, a couple things in the the mix of that conversation because I think I think you guys uh, handled the the question exactly right, and I think one takeaway I'll take from both of your comments is I think we have to see the part three because it feels like a lot of these efforts are just setting these up as themes for perhaps the ultimate big giant conflict. Um, Zendaya, sorry, Johnny's uh, original quote that PT was referencing, I believe is even more specific to if the means of control is that you keep people waiting so they don't rise up themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I uh, I find that uh, really interesting. And I, I'll go further than PT. I was like starting to design my Johnny was right uh, bumper sticker uh, because nice. I think we do know that the Bene Gesserit have been controlling and manipulating everything along the way. Uh, and then when Jen was speaking, one of the things I wanted to pick up on is I think you're, you're really right to, to, to kind of take those two groupings. And um, that to me, uh, and this is not Oscar watch yet, but that to me is where you start to make a strong case for best picture, because it's not just let's have a fight about this. Let's code those two groups as Northern, Southern, mm-hmm. female, male, young, old, and it's all woven into that, that this starts to become more allegorical for our current mm-hmm. historical moment. And to me, that I think we're going to have some time talk about what makes sci-fi versus prestige sci-fi. But that to me is always the thing, is if your mythology can really speak to the current moment. And I do think all of these are now becoming the big questions in our society as we see the older, more religious, coded, however you want, uh, you know, beliefs in a system generations past to a kind of Gen X millennial ethos of uh, let's burn the system down and take care of ourselves. And uh, there are a lot of systems that you could fill in there. I'm not necessarily saying it's it's religion or, or any single one. I think that starts to become a way to really think about how we approach leadership, how we ask these questions about power, how we ask these questions about belief in really, really interesting ways. And I think if I read Villeneuve right, that's like dead in his sights, right? He said we could go this way, we could go that way, but right down the middle, there's a <laughs> chance uh, and and seems to be threading right through them. And I think you're right that everything, even things that are ambiguous, you can trace back to forms of power because 
if we think about, I mean, obviously, like this is not necessarily just me trying to get an excuse to say desert power <laughs> again. <laughs> um, but to me, the one of the best moments in this whole movie is, and maybe this is our, our backdoor to talk about Fate Ratha, but like in the final duel, right before they start, when Paul says, May, and this is what I texted to you right after I, I saw the movie, may your knife, may thy knife chip and shatter, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Fade, and this is probably the best acting moment for me for Austin Butler in this entire movie. He, when he responds where he's like, yeah, like may, may thy, like he's saying it back, but he's kind of like, has no idea what it means. And like, right. like yeah. Um, yeah. and so, so to me in that moment, I was like, oh, that's so brilliant because that's establishing that, you know, we sort of thought like in the first movie, we think of desert power as, and I said this on our retrospective episode as like, that the the house of trade they're the good guys because they want to work with the desert they want to work with the fremen right they want to they want to but but that scene sort of kind of like cynically shows that no it's just another form of power that paul in that moment is able to have one up over and and kind of beat fade ratha because he has taken the time to I don't want to say culturally appropriate, but he has learned the Fremen culture, right? And so he Mm. is like, that's, and that's a power that he has that he can wield. Uh, And so he's able to make that threat knowing the cultural context of it because he's learned about the Fremen and Fade Ratha has not. And inevitably that is always going to make him more powerful on Arrakis. And so like, and so again, the cynical way of looking at it is not, doesn't make him good. It makes him more powerful. And it's just mm-hmm. one of many, many ways in the movie that everyone tries to grab power. Um, so yeah, that's the kind of like anti-white savior, I think, reading of that scene, potentially. Also just funny because Austin Butler is like really goofy <laughs> in that moment. Like, um, But maybe maybe that's our way to segue into kind of fade, fade out. Didn't, I guess like does anything else for rhetorical situation? Because I feel like there's an easy fade out where I just want to talk about the cast and stuff like that. Let's catch some okay. cast we haven't talked about. Because there are, I mean, it, I'm going to steal this from the big picture to give you a transition. Big picture pointed out, everybody in this cast is one of those actors where you're like, oh, this movie, even if the movie's bad, this movie is better with that person, right? It's yep. always good to watch Rebecca Ferguson. It's always good to watch Austin Butler. It's always good to, Stellan Skarsgård, like, Dave Bautista, right? On and on and on to basically everybody. And so I think it is worth celebrating these like fantastic performances. So Jen, uh, I think you you hit Austin Butler first. I assume you're in the Austin Butler hive and you have uh, your TV so, magazine pin up of him. No. Uh, just so, off camera. so how are you feeling about Austin it, Butler? It, I didn't, so I didn't, I didn't love Elvis. I thought he was good in it. So I'm kind of mixed on Austin Butler. Like, I like him, and I do think that he is going to be a very influential... Like, if you see the picture of the cast... Did we talk about this last time? Side by side. Like, those are the four... So we got Timothy Chalamet, Florence Pugh, Zendaya, Austin Butler. That core cast are, like... I feel like someone posted... I can't remember where I saw this, but, like, someone posted a picture of them and was like, these are our actors for the next generation. Like, that, this mm-hmm. is it. These are our movie stars everyone uh ladies and gentlemen introducing the next generation right and so i feel like in that context um i i really like him as an actor but i got i'm gonna say i'm pretty sure his first line in this movie is in the elvis voice (laughs) and then he goes into like a swedish accent later and so like (laughs) he does he does do a good job of tapping into like a scar scarred (laughs) 
yes. rhythm, which yeah. it, which feels really good. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's because I was looking for it. I did also think I'm like, oh yeah, he's still he's still Elvising over here. That's fine. <laughs> but it's um, only uh, in that first scene. Other, I didn't hear it yeah. the rest of the movie. <laughs> I, I want to say the line I, does I'm start not... uh, "Who hey, mama?" Right, so it just <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. no, like... I, I, I will say I don't have Austin Butler teen beat uh, photos on the wall. I have Harkonnen world black and white cinematography yes. photos on my wall because mm. that was awesome. And like I, we had seen it, I, I, you know, I, I had clocked it in the trailers. I was like, oh, there's some sort of black and white flashback i guess that's going to be yeah. cool um to show history of it but it's like no they have a black sun on the planet so when you walk out into the sun everything looks black and white absolutely incredible it's so like, crazy what a stylistic choice um up to and including the fireworks that look like ink blot explosions because of the uh, of the, yeah, way the sun is set up another instance, fireworks it's so good another instance of just like uh, uh, Greg, as you as you sort of uh, correctly noted earlier, just like what can we do? Like, there's been so many sci-fi things. There's been so many, uh, uh, so many iterations of fantastical worlds. What's new? What's different? And finding something to to bring to the table. And just like you said, it like they don't look uh, black and white until they're out in the sun. And even when like a little light will pass over them, like it's flawlessly executed and just so fantastic. Um, I, it wasn't until the second time I saw the movie that I was like, oh, Taika Waititi thought he was doing this in the fourth Thor movie. Right. Do you remember they went oh, with to the-, the Christian Bale parts? Yeah, mm-hmm. would no the they go to a planet that's um has the color drained out of it for some reason and they lose their color right, right. as the scene goes on. Maybe Christian Bale's in that. I'm not sure. Uh, but like I was like, oh Taika, like oh buddy, like so sorry that you just had you got totally schooled on this kind of cool similar effect because it's it is jaw dropping and exactly the same re- uh, reaction as PT because I was sure that was a flashback scene in the the original so. Um, and I'll switch over like Austin Butler is chewing the scenery in a really wonderful way. When you just said that about those four actors, um, best picture, which I did listen to their reaction. I just couldn't wait till we recorded. Um, they said, this is the graduation and essentially meant that same thing. Mm. Like these four have now graduated from being Spider-Man's girlfriend to being, we are the, like, this is the movie star. And of those four you list, um, I think, Butler had the shortest trip to graduation, right? He like skipped mm-hmm. 10th grade or something um, because he's only had these small number. We haven't seen boys on the bikes, bikes on the boys, bike, b- bike riders, bike riders, <laughs> two boys, two biking um, uh, <laughs> bike riders yet. Um, so we, we haven't seen that performance. Maybe we'll get to uh, uh, it shocked me to hear that he he uh, it's all makeup, right? Like he did not shave his head because he was doing that movie and couldn't grow it back in time. Um, so uh, I, I'm shocked that he got into that kind of class because there are other dudes around that age. But um, I completely agree that the four of them are just like they're they're movie stars. I mean, I, I, was I was to tease Wonka, but like if you go from Wonka and open that movie that way to this, and this is going to have a huge, like you're a top tier star. Sorry, Chalamet haters. <laughs> I also legitimately thought Timothy Chalamet was incredible in this movie. Like he, yeah. Yeah. like I, I thought he was very good in the first one, but I feel like he kind of 
and maybe that's a function of where his character's at in the first movie, but like he's very much like a vessel for everything around him, kind of, you know what I mean? Whereas in this movie, I feel like he really has a couple key scenes where he's coming. One you quoted at the beginning, where he's just when he goes full crazy yelling, like it's just really because you haven't seen it the whole time, it's just really good. Um, in, in the first movie, you could read it in as like a Keanu Reeves's Neo of like, mm. oh, like they're they've cast you because you can be the sort of meek uh you know like you're you're just sort of a uh a sad boy from like ladybird and that's who paul's gonna be in this movie uh and it's like yo can he can he make this pivot and he absolutely does yeah and i think yeah. uh i i think that i think that he kills it i yeah the, i agree with greg that austin butler seems to have the shortest walk although he feels like he also has the most minimal like lead up to it in terms of like he was just sort of like a guy in things right, like, sudden, know, for a yeah. while and then it's like you know i feel like he's in he's he's uh one of the manson family people in once upon a time in hollywood suddenly you know then he's elvis it's like he's cast as elvis uh and then he has uh the the bike riders which was supposed to come out last year as, as and when is that coming movie. out uh april or, or may it's okay so it's this sometime is this year. But I last year. Yeah, sometimes this yeah. year uh and he's also in the um the you know i i keep thinking of it masters like the, of the, the air the third band of brothers but yeah it's like he was one of the like oh up up and comers when they cast it and now he's like the superstar of masters of the air like him and uh barry barry keegan and then the third guy callum jones i think who is the the least i i, I feel like it's coming is out from the best Boy in the on that show but is is uh is you know what, what was the least famous of the three of them by the time it actually aired because that's been I think that filmed like three or four years ago. That got pandemic mm. jostled as well. And I don't want to just make fun of Austin Butler's accent. I do want to defend him in this movie. Like he, he, he's doing the kind of sadistic psychopath thing really well. Like in the scenes where he's sort of like getting weirdly aroused by violence and stuff like that. I feel like he's actually doing very well. And then, and really matching what I believe it's Leo de Seydoux's character, Lady Fenring, right? She kind of gives the rundown of his character to the Reverend Mother. He's insecure. I'm not going to get it exactly right, but like she lists a bunch of things that are not very nice about him. <laughs> like he's insecure, right? And that he's, he's you know, cruel. Like she lists a bunch of like qual like descriptors of him. And I feel like as she was saying that, I'm like, yep, yep, yep. Like I'm convinced of all these things because mm -hmm. it's just there's a really good matchup there in terms of the characterization. And, you know, I don't think it's a, again, I don't think it's like a huge flaw of the movie that there, it tries to do, has to do so much. It's, it's funny how the last, uh, again, like half, maybe even third of, uh, of this movie feels like, oof, we got to cover a lot of ground after five hours of buildup. But, uh, you know, there, there isn't as much focus on fade roth as you know maybe there could be so he has to get across a mm -hmm. lot of these character things in a short amount of time and he does do uh i think he does a really good job of that um fun uh, uh, just a, a, a fun fact to share uh about uh the other person you just mentioned jen but uh i did watch uh unlike uh greg watched the the david lynch movie i watched uh the documentary that i talked about last time but had not seen about the Alejandro Jodorowsky version from the 70s that didn't make it and it was that didn't get made it didn't actually come to fruition but the documentary is about how sort of he 
uh, was approached by a, a producer after his first couple of movies. And they were like, wouldn't you want to work on this? And he was like, yes, I have not read that book, but I do want to do that. Uh, and uh, the, the producer who approached him was a French producer named Michel Seydoux, who is Leah Seydoux's oh, granddaughter. So there's, mm. there's a Seydoux family connection to the Dune, the Dune franchise. Amazing. She was great. She didn't have, you know, she wasn't in very much in the movie, but she was great. Um, I feel like, and again, really. So I was just going to add her to the list of actors you don't get unless they have a lot to do next movie, right? She, Mm -hmm. Anya Taylor Joy, like that, they're going to be fun to watch play around in this world. Yeah, for sure. And I think her scenes are so important to this movie for what we were talking about earlier with the sort of like Bene Gesserit, like everyone's playing checkers, the Bene Gesserit have been playing chess and they like, they are sort of planning ahead and, and using again, to go back to my earlier point about everything is just a form of power, right? Having children to the Bene Gesserit, apparently like between, between um, Lady Jessica being uh, a Harkonnen and be, you know, presumably a very similar. And I think it's so important that, that, that the scene with, with Fade Ratha and Lady Fenring is in there because it sets up the reveal, right? Because it's like, because I'm imagining that Lady Jessica was born out of a very similar sort of like a Bene Gesserit went to Baron Harkonnen and did the same thing that that Lady Fenring does to um, to sec- to like secure the bloodline, right? I feel like you're about to give what? us the talk, and you're using euphemisms. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> when a Gesserit needs more power, <laughs> when a Bene Gesserit really loves an emperor, and they've taken all precautions. <laughs> um, but yeah, but it's but it's like it seems like it's done very like without anybody's knowledge, right? Like, or at least yeah. that's what they imply. Yeah, it's right? like, shadow power behind the scenes. It's interesting that the, the, the TV show that's being developed is a Bene Gesserit, not necessarily mm. history, but a you know, focused on the Bene Gesserit in the yeah. past before before these movies, uh, which sounds really exciting, although I also remember being excited about the Continental, the the John Wick TV show prequel <laughs> that I have not spent a second on because the trailer looked bad and everyone who did watch it was like, it's not worth it. So I'm a little, I, I'm not going to get too excited that this is right. It doesn't like, mean oh it's going to be the same quality. Do, yeah. 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 Like they're going to really nail it, but it would be cool if they did. Cause I think that there's, you're right. That the, in the, in the discussion of power, there's the, there's the sort of obvious displays of it. And there's the real sort of those, those conflicts. And then there's the behind the scenes thing. And maybe there's something to unravel there about the gender politics of like the right, men go say, out and they fight, and then the women are crafty, manipulative power behind <laughs> the thrones, and they're the real evil ones, really. When you think about it, um, does this mean we should talk about the fact that this movie had a character who's a fetus um, <laughs> that had close-ups? Look, um, I, the fact that there was a fetus that talked, and a main plot line is: well, if women want to get pregnant, they can just choose to was very mm. interesting coming out within like 10 days of uh, in vitro fertilization being made illegal in parts of the country. Uh, so yeah. Oh it was, no. Are people going to think my opening line is like a no, abortion no. political statement? Oh, I don't no. think so. No. <laughs> no. It's clear. If it only just occurred uh, to me. 
Well, I just want to add to that, and maybe this gets cut out. Uh, Jen, one of the trailers you missed by not being in my theater, and I can't speak for PT, is there is the one of those kind of inspirational um, Christian movies, you know, that are like nobody talks about them, but they make a killing around the country. There's one coming out that is some dude, and he's he loses the love of his life. This is in the trailer. She dies. And then he goes, but wait, she was IVF. And that means there's another version of her out there. If I can find her, then we can be together again. And my theater lost their minds. They were like, this is insanity. And it's like, that would have been insane anytime. Like, but then the fact that it came out this week after these, these news stories, it was like, are you kidding me? Like scrap it, like throw it in the trash. Nobody, nobody <laughs> right. knows that it happened. Um, the it the is, movie literally it, has no audience now. There's no yeah, audience for that movie. No, it's zero. <laughs> um, the It is a bold choice. I, I did know from watching the 1984, doing some of what PT brought up before, and I think you couldn't do th- what they did. I think it would have been too weird for modern audiences. And I think this kind of nicely threads the needle um, while I think purely accidentally bringing up, you know, fetus personhood discourse that is very important and part of political life right now. Um, but I thought the way that Rebecca Ferguson played walking around talking to the fetus was pitch so perfect. Good. No notes. So, yeah. Wait, there's the one point where she just looks down and is like, stop it. Like, 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 yeah. like she's arguing with the sister um, or like enough. Like, and, well, and also when she's doing it in sort of like the the under like the sort of underground caves and like looks up and there's like some people just watching her being like what the hell like <laughs> what are you doing uh yeah it was great i mean yeah i agree because I, I felt like you could you could spend most a lot of the movie being like she's just crazy like that she's not talking to anyone like she's just kind of losing the thread a little bit then you 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 do hear the voice at the end to be right. like, oh okay, not, there is, not to there keep is something there. Um, not to keep bringing it back to Spider Man, but there was a little bit of a Venom uh, well, yeah. vibes I was getting from it, right? Where it's like where it almost feels like Lady Jessica is being sort of like possessed by, like maybe the fetus is so powerful and is using the voice on her, kind of. You know what I mean? Like it feels yeah. doesn't that happen yeah. in the movie? Yeah. Right? Like I'm not making that up. Okay, so. So yeah, it does kind of feel like where who's in control again? Power and control, right? Like who's in control? Is it is it Lady Jessica? Is it the the unborn sister? Um, to me, if we're thinking about aesthetically, like if we think about, and I talked about this on a retrospective episode that that Villeneuve has like a very distinctive aesthetic when approaching this this adaptation, and to me, it almost seemed like he was like. Oh, fetus like a fetus looks really creepy and weird and like <laughs> you know what I mean like and an alien like you know what I mean and like was kind of thought close ups of it not even just to establish it as like a being in a character but like just to contribute to sort of the overall visual language of the film like to be like and like the Harkonnens are bald and the fetus is bald you know what I mean like to me it kind of visually made sense and seemed like a more like in some way seemed more of an aesthetic choice in terms of making this more sci-fi e then you know what i mean he, he watched 2001 and, and saw the star child and was like wait a minute what <laughs> if <laughs> but yeah i would say that that is probably in terms of filmmaking like that is the boldest choice 
Um, mm. And I'm curious to like, you know, to hop back to rhetorical situation is like, is there going to be weird discourse around that? Yes. Okay. Uh, but just brace ourselves. I don't think it's going to be, I, I don't think it's going to be like the primary discourse around mm-hmm. it. I, 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 but I do think there will be, there will be some discourse. The other discourse I'm predicting would be for Dune part three, when the people who don't get the, actually he's this isn't good like he's not the messiah mm. he's just a very naughty boy um there there was a life of brian like uh <laughs> a thread running underneath from especially the like only the true messiah denies his divinity like what what, what chance does that give me uh kind of like element to it but uh but yeah i think there's many people who go see the third movie and paul is clearly not the hero by the end and they're gonna be like wait what it's gonna be a little um, Last Jedi, Luke Skywalker, where they're like, they ruined yeah. Paul. Like, why did they make Paul such a jerk? Like, he's just a nice guy who wants to save Arrakis. Like, what's going on? So I think that, yeah, we can brace for, like, those bad takes and we can brace for, right. I, I, I would I would assume, you know, maybe well-meaning takes, but, like, in in both directions, the people that are like, I think it's 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 uh, unfortunate or or actively bad that there is a... In this de- in this time of personhood debates, there's a uh, a fetus character in this movie, um, as well as people who are like, "Yes, I love Dune Part Two for proving my stance is mm. correct that uh, you know fetal heartbeat is the is the way to go uh, here in this world where there's spaceships and uh, people floating and you know weird hover." Uh, Hovermen and all this stuff where it's just like, yeah, maybe not everything in this movie is realistic, but they might lock in on that as being like, oh, that's a statement. I I feel like Denis may, may be like, oh, I wish I wish I may have made a different choice. I wish I wasn't <laughs> waiting in these waters right now at this time, but oh well. Sensing that we might go towards awards watch soon, I don't want to yeah. leave this movie conversation without hearing from each of you. Um, so we'll set aside the the uh, Black Sun planet, the Harkonnen planet. Um, can I just hear your other favorite shot or couple shots if you have a couple nominees? Like, there's so much stunning visually. I'd just love to hear kind of where were you just like... Well, the other, I also kept stealing PT. Uh, when we see a movie, he sends us uh, uh, Al, Pacino Al Pacino from uh, uh, from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Going, what a picture! What a and picture. so, <laughs> what what moments in the theater had you go like, ah, what a picture? I'm gonna go with two, but I, I, I don't want to share both because I'm, I'm afraid I might steal. They're small, but I, I might steal from Jen. Uh, the the one that that immediately leaps to mind is actually it's very late. It's when the emperor's arriving on Arrakis, and he arrives in this like chrome orb that is like is floating over the world. And I was just like, oh, you can see the desert and the transition into the city mm-hmm. of Arakeen in the reflection of the chrome on the orb. Even the, while it is also on the bottom of the screen, and I was like, "God damn cinema! This is <laughs> like, they, they did everything. They really thought that through, yeah. and they figured out what the reflections would look like. Like this is amazing. It's a very, very small and very little, but like, I was like, it just, it, it, it just, you know, that sort of that's a little thing, but it really grounds. It's like, yeah, that's what it, that's what it would have to happen. You would have to reflect what was was coming up from the from the ground. The one I ones I immediately think of are anytime we have. I think they're usually Harkonnen soldiers floating down. Yeah, and just like that the, was my mo- the movement of that is just so smooth and ethereal and like weird. 
Um, and I'm just like, how did they even do this? And like, because it doesn't look like actors strapped into harnesses like being lowered no. like, like the gravity of it seems different and so i think that was that was that was probably my the first time that happened my moment was just like oh this movie like oh my god is um i also really liked the 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 fremen city like the especially the the sacred waters i think that from a production mm. design standpoint yes. that looks super cool um and really like gave gravity to that moment where he's explaining these are all these are like we might be dying of thirst we will never drink this water like i i just that anything like fremen culture related i think was really well done because the production design really supported it um and just like all the shots of the <laughs> this is where lady jessica throws up and <laughs> And then Silgar's like, don't let it out. Don't let it out. Don't let it out. Waste that water. Javier Bardem cracked me up through this entire movie. Like it was flawless. And it really neat and was like an element that the movie really needed, I think, like to kind of lighten it up a little bit in parts and give him a reprieve. But like (laughs) and but but just the 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 design of and the shots of them plugging basically plugging the water taps into the dead people or dying people in some, it's like mm-hmm. there's a soldier that's not even dead yet that they're doing it to. I thought right. it was really good. The, the, yeah. the hand yeah. away. He's like, no, yeah. And then they, yeah, they <laughs> yeah. just like vacuum seal him. Like the, the bodies just like suck up. That's incredible. I, uh, I will note uh, another, which was, I, I feel a little bad saying it. Cause this was the scene that we got after the Dune part one re-release was Paul getting on the sandworm for the first time. But there's one, I mean, multiple parts of the shot and, and uh, you know, it's echoed at the end where it's like, you know, him standing on like the, in the foreground on the sort of, you know, the, a peak of a, of a dune, uh, so to speak. And, uh, and you see the worm kind of approaching in the distance, but then once he's actually on it and we're, we're sort of with uh, in, in the fore again, in the foreground are the, uh, the Fremen celebrating and just like the the sense of distance of just like he mm. really is super small and this worm where they're like this is the biggest worm we've ever seen it's like it's a grandfather worm grandpappy doesn't doesn't even look that big because it's so far away like it just does such a good job of being like oh right this is what it would look like it wouldn't look like oh they're it's coming right next door like we they're, they're they would make sure they were that far away it was just you know it, it just reinforced sort of oh right how big this all is how uh, and how smart they are, how much they know sort of their their world. And I want to set up the transition to the next part by correcting one thing, Jen. You, you you didn't give him his full title. I believe you mean future Best Supporting Actor nominee, Javier Bardem, is excellent in this movie. <laughs> Wait, can I say one more, give a shout out to one more oh, shot, though? Okay. Sorry. Now, okay. see, see how it feels? See how it feels when you have a perfect transition <laughs> Ooh, and someone steps true. all over it? Um, yeah. The overhead shot, and then I want to hear Greg's, uh, the overhead shot of when they first arrive at the South and Paul is walking through the crowd. Oh yes. Oh, so good. It's beautiful, but just, it's just like little heads. Yeah. And they all are the same color scheme and right. so their yeah. robes and their hoods are sort yeah. of all, um, you know, yeah. so good. Yeah. yeah. I feel like the more I sit, sit and think about it, the more I can think of, cause there are so many great, yeah. great, beautiful <laughs> visuals. Um, uh, Greg, what, what was, yeah, what your... was yours? Greg? Um, I mean, many that you just mentioned in the worm, uh, riding the worm scene, I just wanted to shout out uh, when it hits the dune a little over from him and the dune starts to collapse and he runs along the edge and jumps like, Mm -hmm. of course, that's how that would work. But you think about those as like mountains. And so uh, like the way it's just kind of disintegrating totally worked. (laughs) Yeah, it's very Um, fluid. 
Uh, there's some really good action set pieces in this film, which we have not talked that much about, but, um, uh, there's an early raid on a Harkonnen, uh, um, the harvester, I guess. And, um, uh, Johnny and, uh, Paul take down a, an ornithopter. And so there's just this Mm -hmm. last shot in that sequence where they are sprinting across. You see them underneath the harvester's feet to scale. And the, the ornithopter crashes behind them in just this huge explosion and a fantastic, haven't talked about him nearly enough. Hans Zimmer, like, and you're just like <laughs> yes so good. like uh you know i'll see this movie every day until i die this is why i come to the movies so that to me was kind of uh one to shout out the action filmmaking um uh the scene where the the two leads are making out at the top of a dune but you just see the the whole expanse of the desert behind them they, they, i believe this is their first kiss um, mm-hmm. that's, I mean, it's Lawrence of Arabia, but it's like, yeah, you can't do that in the volume. Uh, sorry, beloved Star Wars <laughs> properties. Like I just, to, to really celebrate, they went there and it, and it's hard. Like, I mean, I think about how half an hour on the beach and I'm all grumpy and these people lived it in a scale unimaginable and it was beautiful. And it's, it, it's like all the natural landscapes really work. When, Gregor, when, when sand is coarse and rough and gets everywhere, <laughs> I hate sand. <laughs> Someone had to say it. Uh, I really love to kind of riff off that. Um, when Zendaya and Timothy Chalamet are are sand walking together in tandem, mm-hmm. beautiful, so beautiful. Yes. I was like, you were is... thinking of future Joker movie, pa de de, uh, because that <laughs> no, that's not what they went with. They is that folly, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't speak French, uh, so I don't know. But similar a pas de deux is a ballet, and I mispronounced that. All our French listeners are going to write in and tear me to shreds. But uh, it it is it's balletic, Sacre and bleu. that is that is a romantic ballet, right? Like it's a duet usually between a man and a woman to to have kind of love. And um, and sorry, I'm walking all over yours. But then the the tracks, like the tracks, are stunningly beautiful. That yes, you know, and like to me, that's like how do they make movies where they had these actors do that, and then for the second take, they had to rake all the sand and <laughs> right. so on. So it's just like right. incredible because it's almost so. like calligraphy. It's like calligraphy, you know. Like, yeah, it really feet. is. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. I, uh, yeah, I, w- I want to know two two other little like qu- quick beats um, about the two of them. Uh, from scenes that Craig was just mentioning, the when uh, and and you as well, Jen, the, the, when they were uh, when they end up walking together, sort of in uh, 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 synchronously. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, synchronously? The, synchronously. Synchronously. Thank you. Yeah. Um, synchronously. Not a real word. Anyway, um, the that like the sort of lead up is she's like, well, you got to do this, and he's like, well, it, according to the books I read from the anthropologist, it's and she just <laughs> yes. like looks at him like excuse you and so that was you know a shots fired at uh academics but you know uh, very fair and and especially from the uh, a, a little kind of you know the colonialism academic colonialism uh of just sort of like here's what these people and what their lives are like and he's realizing okay it's not it's not the same as the lived experience uh and that that uh that scene that ends with that helicopter there, there's another time later where there's a, a similar sort of explosion happens in the background like on a like slightly delayed or it's like you think oh there's gonna be an explosion but you don't see it like it takes a couple extra seconds for it to happen um and it works great both times but the build-up to the explosion is they're sort of like okay 
like she has the like rocket launcher and it's like i'm gonna shoot he's like well i'm gonna i'll, I'll distract them we have to get their shields down and they're like they do a really good job without like showing that this is going to happen. It was just a nice beat of action filmmaking of like, he runs the, the, the heli- the ornithopter starts uh, firing and then like, he like survives of course. And then the guy starts firing and the shield comes back up and you're like, Oh, I guess she never shot the thing. And then the guy firing from the ornithopter like turns and the, the bolt uh, from the rocket launcher is like stuck in the shield, like slowly making its way through. And it's like, oh, right. He didn't realize that that because fu- he was focused on Paul. He didn't hear that or see that. So neither did we uh, in the audience. Like we didn't see her shoot it. We didn't hear that that explosion or that the, the discharge. Uh, and then by the time he realizes it, it's too late for him. And then we get to celebrate uh, that ornithopter blowing up. What a, what a nice little mind. beat. That just reminded me that we haven't talked about the final fight really that much. Like we've referenced mm. it a couple of times, but to me, the callback to the first movie and his opening training scene with Gurney, where he's like the knife, the whole knife thing. And then like, I'm taking you down with me. Like you got right. me, but but you're going to go down with me. And the fact that that was so visually clear to me that I immediately thought of that scene. Yes. And was like, oh, he's taking it. We've come full circle. He's taking what he learned from that opening scene in the first movie to 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 defeat Fade Ratha. I was just like, this is yeah. genius. This whole thing is genius. Uh, <laughs> and w- once again, shouting out the woman who had, uh, you know, uh, enjoyable vocal reactions, uh, clearly did think that Paul w- had been stabbed when the when the like the like sound of it because it, 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 like had she had a very big reaction and it was like, oh, when she realized that it was Fade Ratha. Even though it was like, it was like, did you really think that like they were gonna yeah. just kill this the main character? Like, even even if this were the I mean, end of the movie, like, what a, what a weird thing. They did we're, a good job with the reaction shots of establishing that everyone in that room thought he was dead. Yes, you know yeah. what I mean, like, yeah. or going to die. So yeah, it's great. Um, look look what you did, Greg. We can't stop now. We can't stop shouting out scenes that we <laughs> love from this movie. <laughs> but yeah, we should we should move into Oscars watch. So who wants to do the the reminder? Like maybe someone didn't listen to our retrospective episode. Someone want to do this the facts rundown? Maybe PT can do that. I mean, I you know I love I love talking you facts know. and I love I talking uh, history. So reminder that Dune Part One was the most o- Oscar awarded movie of its year in 2021. Uh, I th- think it might have been the most nominated as well um but it won six academy awards it won um best score best sound best editing best cinematography best production design and best visual effects why did i say best each time i don't know but once it got started i couldn't stop it was also nominated for picture adapted screenplay costume design and makeup and hairstyling famously not for uh, director. That was the weird sort of snub of the year um, that uh, you know uh, Denis didn't uh, didn't make it. I, I want to shout out uh, deep into this episode, uh, the episode of the big picture, not about Dune Part Two, but um, th- there was a segment. I think it's the one that was also like the SAG Awards reaction that uh, had the uh, the person who used to work for the Academy talking about the voting processes and the nomination processes is sort of the rank choice voting for uh best picture but then also how the different 
categories, how nominations happen, how they, what the sort of steps are for that. Um, super insightful. Uh, I think I was the last of the three of us to listen to it. So you two had already talked about it a little bit on the text thread by the time I actually finished the episode. Um, but that was really useful to sort of show that like, you know, the, you know, the, the directors nominate the directors, the directing branch nominates them. And uh, I don't think that is a meant as a slight, uh, they, they meant it as a slight, but um you know, it's it's just possible everyone was like, yeah, yeah, he'll be nominated, so we'll we'll put these other names down, and he ended up on the outside, looking in. But yeah, uh, this is this has a legacy of the you know this this two movie franchise has a legacy from the first movie of being uh, very Oscars friendly. So I'll start off by saying we established uh, in our Maestro episode that this is a rough year for movies. And so (laughs) we don't know what indie darlings we don't know about yet, but it seems like it's going to be a pretty quiet year. And that's going to work. Huge advantage for Dune. I assume you both agree that we don't even need to worry about talking about the technical categories. This will be nominated basically in everything. Uh, so I think for me to pick up on what PT just put down, if Denny Villeneuve is not uh, nominated, what are we even doing? Because it was a snub last time, and this is an incredible achievement. Um, and so I'm the one who put in the doc then, kind of all that bracketed, are there any performances that really do make it in? Because I think that's probably the difference between a huge night and a really good night. That, that's sort of what I was going to say is now having seen the movie, I am more convinced that it has more than Dune Part 1. It has more potential to break through in the acting categories. And I think mm-hmm. Timothy Chalamet in particular, he's he really is carry, stepping up and carrying, carrying this movie. It's not to say that that doesn't imply that other people are not carrying their weight. But I feel like he really just like it's clearly his movie and he's he's just his presence in the whole thing is amazing. And so. I would say more than the first one, he he now has a chance in Best Actor. After him, Zendaya is possible. I have I would have less hope for her probably. Um, Harvey Bar- Harvey Bardem, just because the Academy loves yes. Harvey Bardem, with yeah. good reason. He's amazing and he's great. Um, but yeah, what are, what are other ones that you feel like could potentially make it in? My thing. So my thinking for two people that are in this movie is that. They may not get nominated for this movie, but if they're good in the the other movie that was supposed to come out in 2023 that's now coming out in 2024, it could give them a boost there, which is Austin Butler in the aforementioned Bike Riders and Zendaya in Challengers, mm. uh, which, you know, I don't know if either of those movies, you know, they've they've got some pedigree because, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're from directors that have gotten some acting nomination uh, action in the past um you know I don't, I don't know how good those movies will be i don't know you know they i'm sure they, they will turn in solid performances i don't know if they're going to necessarily be uh academy nomination worthy but you know sometimes there's people where it's just like oh yeah you know but they also were in this movie like would zenday get nominated for challengers with a kind of for best actress with a, and she also was in Dune right. and was great in that. Yeah. And then same with Austin Butler. Um, I mean, I'll also throw out, I don't think this would, I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, not because of the gender breakdown of it, but I think the two men you mentioned, Chalamet and Bardem, would be more likely to get looks first. I think Rebecca Ferguson in Supporting Actress uh, should get some mention because like she is sort of, unhinged in a in a way that is like really interesting and i think 
you know, has some like sh- little showy moments that uh, might, uh, you know, might really sort of connect with, uh, yeah. with the. the and her physical academy. acting when she first takes the water of life is so good. Where she's just like A plus writhing. Like it's like, <laughs> you know. Um, are, are there any technical, I'm, I'm looking to see now. I, I guess there really weren't. I was like, were there any technical awards? It didn't get nominated for the first the time, first time and around. I, and I don't believe, I think it got everything. It yeah, I think it got all of uh, Is there anything that it, so just to, to reiterate, it didn't win costume design or makeup and hairstyling. It, it did win the six other technical awards. Do you think it's possible? I mean, again, we don't know what else is out there, mm-hmm. but like, I would assume it's what the front it, runner for the six that it won last time. Right what now, did it lose to. The I guess the question for me is: it the Barbie? Is it the Barbie of next year, or is it the Oppenheimer of next year? Right. You know what I mean? And, like, and I think as of right now, and again, we don't know. You know, as Greg said, there might be these smaller movies, these under you know, movies that like I could see some studios or and or filmmakers like who might be in post-production come summer being like, yo, let's finish this movie fast and get it out mm. because there, there's an opening. We might actually have a better chance for, uh, for some awards things. Uh, I think that right now the, the main contender would seem to be Furiosa. Cause that's another movie following up from a, I believe six, five or six time Academy award winning movie in Fury road. Uh, with uh, you know, w- with a bunch more nominations there, um, you know the the looking initially, it's like you know un- unclear if that is uh, going to be as fully realized uh, a vision as Fury Road, um, which is m- mostly to say that like that that CGI looked a little weird in uh, in the trailer, but uh, that movie you know again could be incredible. Another Anya Taylor Joy uh, joint that she's just running, so. Uh, Jen, l- let me let me ask you. Uh, I, I don't mean to do this as like a trivia question. What's the deal that you, but you always do. say? I do. I love it. What's, <laughs> what's 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 the thing you always want people to remember with best makeup when uh, when it comes to? It is often tied with best uh, an acting category. So Correct. so Gary it was the eyes of Tammy Faye. Oh, no, it was the eyes no, of Tammy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah with yeah. Jessica Chastain. Yeah. Um, and then best costume design for a movie that is centered around costume design, uh, Cruella one. Oh, that's year. right, right, right. And that uh, which, okay. Um, and that well, I re- if I remember correctly, the punditry from that year was that the designer from Cruella was so well loved that it was more of like yes. a career, like it was like like she had an edge regardless of how people felt about the movie or even the designs in it because because of the yes. designer. So. Um, it was her. It was her third Academy Award, and she had previously won for go. Mad Max: Fury Road, uh, as well as okay. A Room with a View, a very similar movie uh, to Mad Max: Fury Road. Basically <laughs> so, the same thing. So Greg had put this very, very astutely put this both in rhetorical situation and in Oscars watch. We still haven't totally talked about it yet, but the how does the part two, part three, half a movie, whole movie trilogy, what is happening? Like, how is all of that discourse going to impact the Oscars? Do you think that once people see the movie, it's very clear that the plot is sort of setting up another movie? Is that going to prolong the Oscars success or best picture chances? Or like, how does that play in? I will say I 
see it i mean it's all anybody's going to talk about see spider verse this year see um you know every time return of the king gets invoked right they're going to return of the king yes. it, uh as if that's a verb uh and so i'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb and say i think that this feels complete enough it is not so much of a cliffhanger that you feel totally unfulfilled that is running counter to what i said some people in my theater were acting like but um, I just feel like when you look at this, it feels like a complete story. It's not half a story. We've got a full story. We just have another piece of it yet to learn. So I'm going to say I don't think it'll have that big a discourse helped somewhat with the it's going to be a really quiet year. I, I think that's I think that's right. Um, unless the, the only sort of um, hurdle I see one would be if this movie is super successful and Warner brothers is like, we, we are going to announce there's a third movie like as soon as possible. Uh, then yeah, then that could maybe reposition the discussion to this is part two. This is only the middle that return of the King discourse kicks in, um, which sometimes kind of feels like copium, like with avatar way of water where it's just sort of like, Oh, but like they're waiting for the third one. And it's like, are they, or are they like, like you're going to get well, like. Avatar is hard to compare to because there's going to be like a million of those. You know what I mean? Like it's not a trilogy. It's like, they're going to keep making five or six or well, seven. Until, I mean, with the asterisk of like James Cameron's not getting younger. So like That's he's true. saying he's going to make them, but like, you know, yeah, he, it was, it was, he's written five movies, but then the last, you know, and maybe this was because of that um, return of the King discourse, the last, like around way of water. He's like, I'm definitely doing a third one. And then there's like, there's the, the drafts of scripts for four and five, those may go off to someone else. I may, like George Lucas, hand that off to, you know, sell sell the company, sell the franchise, or whatever. Um, I, I, but I think that like the 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 other thing that would uh, push back against it, even if there are people who are like, yeah, this is a, a concluding story, or it's you know, it's it functions so well on its own. I don't really care that it's in the middle of something. Uh, is the sort of push and pull that can happen with best picture winners where like, I mean, especially when it's like, there's a, there's a, a crash and everyone's like, well, that was, that was a mess. Uh, and then, you know, uh, I mean, you get the Martin Scorsese coronation the next year with the departed and then no country for old men versus there will be blood where people are like, okay. Um, and then, you know, there was the moonlight, uh, sp- you know, uh, spotlight and then weird sort of shape of water. And then it was like, what if we just went with green book? Like, what if we did like the very sort of simple movie that like, is it really a crowd pleaser? And then the response to that was, okay, no, people were kind of upset about green book. Like maybe we'll vote for parasite. And again, I'm, I'm ascribing sort of this like uh, 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 decision-making to this huge monolith of tens of thousands of voters um, who are not necessarily thinking that way, but there is, you can you can see a narrative of an ebb and flow, and it looks, by all accounts, like this year is going to be a really big blockbuster is going to win. Like Oppenheimer, a movie that was like you know had a bunch of uh, you know credibility and and pedigree as uh, you know a big biopic uh, and, and a blockbuster filmmaker, but was still like even exceeded what was expected uh, in terms of success. And at least, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping Dune Part 2 does a similar thing. Is there going to be like, we just did this. Like, we just did the, the blockbuster for Best Picture. Like, maybe we need to find a really small movie that we we elevate instead of giving it to, 
you know, a big Hollywood success story. Um, And then once, if that door starts opening for some people, then the whispers of, and also it's only part two, like there's really going to be a part three, like I think could start to snowball into, you get a bunch of nominations and you win a bunch of things below the line, but it still doesn't. Right, it doesn't you push know, get, get over the hump for picture. I also yeah. could see a Villeneuve director and some small movie wins picture split. Uh, could oh, be something that happens. I, I like that. Um, that makes a lot of sense. So the other thing too, I'll add, and this is goes back to what Greg brought up earlier. If if the word on the street is Villeneuve is taking a break before doing part three, then people might be like, well, we better, we better give it give it to it now. Because we don't know, like if if it's like a long time out, you know what I mean. Like that's the only counter argument I have to what you're saying of like, um, the like let's wait for part three. But Ugh. yeah, I don't you're, know. We'll have you're to making see. me afraid of them waiting, and then there's something between Villeneuve and Warner Brothers where it falls apart, and he leaves no. the project, and then we never get to like that's that's you the that darkest back. timeline. <laughs> so June um, part three coming from Brett Ratner. In 2027, <laughs> Ron Howard has been brought in to uh, finish. Uh, <laughs> Aww, sorry, he's holding Ron up Howard. a Dune Part Three sign, smiling. Right. Um, um, all right. I think, yeah. Well, either way, it will be exciting, and I think it'll be fun to root for. I remember rooting, <laughs> like cheering, very hard and really hope dicting a lot for Dune when Dune Part One. And being super it. excited when the tweets came in from the pre-televised ceremony. Yeah, that was a And it deal. won four, four of the awards. I don't think they're ever going to do that again. So hopefully. I, no, thank God. I think I think the last question that, that's, I think it's the last question. I think the last question we should talk about is uh, to help us begin this transition. Because I am so excited about Dune Part 2. I kind of want to just talk about the 2025 Oscars instead of the Oscars happening in eight days from as of this recording. But what do you? T- what do the two of you think would have happened if this came out when it was supposed to? If this was a, a fall twenty twenty three movie, what would have happened in terms of its Oscar nominations? And who do you think would have been pushed out if if it got if it was getting nominations? I mean, I think you said it earlier. Oppenheimer would just be too big, and it, it, there wouldn't be enough room for another technical achievement. You, know? you don't think it would even be nominated to technical achievement? I don't know. Greg, what do you think? I, it, what's so hard is Oppenheimer had its initial thing. And then when it was a quietish fall, it was like, well, let's put Oppenheimer back out and let's talk about Oppenheimer again and let's see it again. And so if you had cut that off on October 20th or whenever it was, and then it was, we have Dune and Dune is awesome and we can watch <laughs> Dune and we don't have to worry about Oppenheimer it's really hard to figure out in my mind, which one of those would have dominated the like November, December, which is so key for this, for, for award season. I will say I, I, I enjoyed all those picks you just made for acting nominations. Those categories are so tight this year that I think Mm -hmm. if they come out last year, it would have gone just to the technical. I think you would have heard more of the, well, it's only part two and it's a crowded year. So let's wait and reward them all. I mean, who do you kick out? Like, really, I mean, pick somebody in each category and put a Dune person in there. That's tough in a lot of these categories outside of the technical achievements. So, um, yeah, it's really I feel like visual effects. It would definitely get in because that yeah. category is weird this year. And then there's definitely room for it to get in there. And then 
Like I think any any Napoleon nomination could have been would have been replaced. <laughs> I, like that's because uh, I think whatever whatever juice Napoleon got that cut it to I believe three nominations would have gone to Dune. Yeah, uh, sound uh, sound probably would be my next lot most likely for this year. Yeah, they would could have gotten yeah. in. Uh, which and score I guess the score is probably uh, booting out American Fiction. Mm, yeah, yeah, right? or, or maybe. Sorry, Greg. Maybe Indiana Jones. Uh, yeah. it, depending mm-hmm. upon what, how much of the let's give it another nomination to John Williams was like the the sort of like bonus fifth spot, um, or was American Fiction the bonus uh, fifth spot? Um, but yeah, I mean, once you you know, get beyond that, and then there you know, makeup and hairstyling has like you know, they're sort of they're somewhat outlier. Both Golden Society of the Snow. I feel like those might have happened anyway, but then like. Would poor things maybe, or even Oppenheimer have maybe not gotten? Is that is that where maybe the, the Oppenheimer might have gotten yeah. uh, kicked out because of Dune? Yeah, it's tough. And then go looking up to director, there would have been a Villeneuve got screwed last time. Um, who uh, you know who would they have kicked out? I feel like it probably would have been Justine Trier, and that would have sucked. Yeah. So, so it's now. I'm glad it's coming out now. I guess. Yeah. I think the holy war has begun. <laughs> so we're ready to get out of here. Um, Greg, where can folks find you on the internet? Uh, any social media you like, I am at IonCanon, E-Y-E-O-N-C-A-N-O-N. Uh, if you don't find me there under that name, then get off that platform. It's not worth being there. And PT, where can folks find the show? Uh, once again, they can follow us on Instagram or threads at the long take review. They can follow us on Letterboxd at uh, LTR pod and they can subscribe rate and review anywhere where they get their podcasts. And you can find me on Instagram and threads at Subchakchai S-O-P-C-H-O-C-K-C-H-A-I and on Letterboxd at Qui-Gon Jen. This was so much fun, everybody. Thank you. Yay. Yay. Ta-da. Follow the Long Take Review on Substack at thelongtake.substack.com. Subscribe for free to receive new podcast episodes as well as written reviews of films with Oscar buzz and new films and series from pop franchises like Star Wars and Marvel.